leading. Appreciate that very much. And Luis, thank you uh, for leading us in that prayer. And thank you for being here tonight. Uh, we've got our brother Dan Owen uh, scheduled to speak to us. Dan is uh, someone that most of you uh, may already know that I have known uh, pretty much my entire life. Dan is one that has been uh, with the Broadway congregation in Paducah, Kentucky since 1987. Prior to that, he had spent four years as a full-time instructor here at the, the Bear Valley Bible Institute. Uh, but Dan recognized, what, since 87? What did I say? Six years here. Seemed like. <laughs> when um, Dan recognized that he missed the pulpit, he de decided that uh, he was going to leave the, uh, the work at Bear Valley and go to Paducah, Kentucky, where they had offered him uh, the job there. And it just so happened that there was a good brother there that had an idea that would allow Dan to not only fulfill his ministry duties in Kentucky, but also teach classes at Bear Valley. And so, so through the, the wonder of technology, that was uh, what has happened. And Dan has continued to teach here at the school uh, virtually since then. He now teaches seven classes uh, for the Bible Institute through uh, technology and the same uh, kind of technology that uh, the AP guys uh, teach as well. Dan is one that uh, has a PhD, is uh, one that has <clears throat> learned uh, Spanish so that he could uh, minister to uh, the Spanish-speaking people. He has had ministries in uh, various places like Vernon, Texas and in Crockett, Mississippi. And <clears throat> Dan and Cindy, his wife, who I knew before she was Cindy Owen, uh, have been married. They just recently celebrated their 50th uh, anniversary. When I think about the years of friendship with Dan, I recognize that it has been a truly a blessing to me to uh, have Dan as a friend, as a co-worker in, in this work. Dan is, and I are those that will spend a lot of time talking about the Bible, talking about text, and sometimes we'll bouncing things off of each other that uh, we're looking at a particular passage and getting each other's perspective on that. But he is truly a scholar in every sense uh, that I know that word. Uh, he is proficient in the biblical languages. He teaches most of his New Testament courses straight from the, uh, the Greek text. And so <clears throat> because of that background and because of the depth that Dan has in doing that kind of study, I asked him to do a particular topic tonight that is maybe a little bit out of the ordinary. It's certainly based on the Psalms, but it is one that is a study that if you uh, will, are, got your thinking caps on and are ready to engage in this study will be greatly enriched by the material that Dan has to share with us tonight. And so uh, without further delay, Dan, I'll turn it over to you. I pester Denny, but I love him dearly and respect him greatly as I do the other men here, but he's my buddy. Um, tonight, 
our subject is going to require you to get your Bible, hold them up, and get your pencil out. Because if you just sit there passively, you might as well lay your head on your wife's shoulder right now because this is not going to work for you. But um, we're going to be talking about the Psalms in defense of Christ in the book of Hebrews. Uh, this is a papyrus number 46, one of the Chester Beatty papyri. It's the oldest manuscript we have of the book of Hebrews. This is the opening part of the book of Hebrews in that ancient manuscript. Um, the book of Hebrews is what we would call an apology. We have some apologists running around here. And <clears throat> in 1 Peter uh, chapter 3, verse 15, the way I learned it, not like up on the screen, sanctify in your hearts Christ as Lord and be ready always to give an answer to everyone that asks you for a reason of the hope that is within you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. In this translation you see on the screen, be ready always to make a defense. The word is apologia, from which we get apologetics, and it means a logical, reasonable explanation <clears throat> for why you are a Christian, why you believe in Christ, and why you want that to be your life. See, if somebody comes up and asks you, why are you a Christian? Why do you think I should be a Christian? Give me something that makes sense. Well, apologists and apologetics involves all kinds of arguments from science and all these other different kinds of things, which is great. We approach it from different standpoints, but the book of Hebrews is a, an apologetic strictly based on scripture for people who have a very high view of scripture. Uh, if people don't believe in the scriptures, then different kinds of apologetics are necessary. But this book is, is written to people who believe very strongly in scripture and in the authority and inspiration of scripture, <clears throat> and they are uh, making, it on, making the argument on that basis. Now, if you write down Luke 24, verse 44 through 45. In that passage, something extremely important for our understanding is written. Jesus, the risen Christ, is about to leave his apostles, and he is telling them some things about their mission and so forth. He says, these things I spoke with you while I was still with you, how that all things that are written about me in the law and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Notice he didn't just say all things that are written there must be fulfilled. He said all things that are written about me <clears throat> in the law and the prophets and in the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds that they might understand the scriptures. The book of Hebrews actually presents us Christ's interpretation of the Old Testament scripture. It presents the case that Christ made to his apostles when he showed them those spiritual, sometimes hidden meanings of Old Testament passages that spoke about him. That's exactly the strategy that the Hebrew writer is making in the book of Hebrews. So as we start today, the paragraph that begins the book of Hebrews, turn your Bible to the book of Hebrews, this paragraph makes some earth-shaking assertions about Jesus Christ. <clears throat> it begins like this, in, like if you translate it from that right up there. In many parts and in many ways, in ancient times, God spoke to the fathers through the prophets. But 
In these last days he has spoken again, see, to us by a son whom he appointed heir of all things and by whom also he made the worlds. This son, he says, being the brightness of God's glory and the exact representation of his subject, uh, his substance, even while upholding all things by his powerful word, listen, when he had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become by so much better than the angels, in that he has inherited a more excellent name than they. Now, we could spend all night in that paragraph, but there are two major assertions that follow us through the book of Hebrews. They start in verse 3, where he said, when he had made purification for sins. Now, to all of his Jewish audience, there's only one person in Judaism that can make purification for sins. Who is it? It's a priest, see? But then he says, when he had made purification for sins, and we know he did that at the cross... After that, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, which is not a quotation, but it is an allusion to Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. It is an enthronement psalm. So right out of the gate, he's caused a problem in the minds of his Jewish readers because he's talking about someone who made purification for sins, who has to be a priest, and in the same breath, he's talking about someone who's been enthroned as a king. And if you read the Old Testament, that is a conundrum because that is impossible under the Old Testament law, see? So as he begins to further that case, having said he inherited a more excellent name than the angels, uh, he's you know, better than they, in verse 5, he bolsters that by saying, for to which of the angels did he ever once say, you are my son, today <clears throat> I have become your father. Well, that is a quotation from Psalm 2, verse 7. And those of you that know the second psalm, you know that the second psalm is a little drama where, where the kings of the earth and the nations are all gathering together in rebellion against the Lord and against the Lord's anointed, against the Lord's chosen king. And God looks down at them and scoffs and laughs, laughs at them and said, you're going to rebel against me? And you're going to rebel against my king? So in Psalm 2 verse 6, God says, I have set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. See, that's what God, God's not going to change his mind. And then in verse 7, the king himself whom God has appointed says, I will tell you about the decree. In other words, the decree by which God enthroned me. He said to me, you are my son today. I have become your father. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance, etc. So the key word in this is today. Because the today there is not the day Jesus was born or anything like that. It's the day that God enthroned him as his, at his right hand as king. See, in, the, in ancient Israel, the kings of Israel were called the sons of God. They were the son of God. The very next quotation, it's not from the Psalms, it's still in Hebrews 1 verse 5. He says, and I will be to him a father and he will be to me a son. That's 2 Samuel 7 verse 14. And that's in that passage that, you know, when your days are fulfilled and you shall sleep with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you which shall proceed out of your bowels 
and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. He will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And then verse 14 gets a little dicey because it says when he sins, I'll correct him. Uh-oh now. Uh-oh, church. <clears throat> but see, contextually in that time, he's talking about Solomon. And he says, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Because when God enthroned him as king, he became God's son as far as people were concerned because God chose him and enthroned him as king. In Psalm 89, verse 20 to 27, the same is said of David. David in Psalm 89, 26 calls out to God and says, you're my father, my rock, you know, etc. And in, in Psalm 89, verse 27, God said, I will make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. So see, when God enthroned a king in the Old Testament, that king was known as the son of God. So in the Jewish mentality, Saul was the son of God, and David was the son of God, and Solomon was the son of God. This has nothing whatsoever to do with virgin births. It's the terminology used by God when God himself chose a king and enthroned that king. See, today I have become your father. All right. So already he said in verse 3, he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. That's an enthronement psalm. Then he quoted two other enthronement passages. And then in verse 6 of Hebrews chapter 1, when the firstborn, that's talking about Christ. You remember God called David his firstborn in Psalm 89, 27. When the firstborn came into the world, he said, let all the angels of God worship him. <clears throat> So unlike the angels, whom God has not exalted and enthroned to rule over all things, he said to the angels, let all the angels worship him. Verse 7, of the angels, he said, and there he, he quotes uh, uh, Psalm 104, verse 4. Now this is important for you to write in your Bibles. He makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. Now, if your Bible translates it, he makes his angels winds. You need to cross out winds, and you need to write spirits right there. The reason is because if you drop down to verse 14, he refers back to verse 7, and he uses the two exact same words in Greek, and he says, are they not all ministering spirits? See, he's, he's citing this psalm again in verse 14. So he says, he makes his angel spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. So truly, the angels are great ministers. And by the way, the word is uh, leiturgos, which means priestly ministers. And in Hebrews, they are priestly ministers in the heavenly temple of God, the true temple, see. But he makes them priestly ministers and servants to come do our will. But they're certainly not kings. And they're certainly not our high priests, see. Christ inherited a more excellent name than they. All right? So now we come down to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8, where he says, But of the Son, he says, your throne, see, it's an enthronement text, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness for this reason. God, even your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your fellows. So why did God anoint Christ and enthrone him as king? Because during his earthly life, 
He proved by his behavior that he loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. And for that reason, he earned the crown. He inherited a more excellent name than the angels. And God said, you are my son. Today, I have become your father. See? So the, the beginning part of the book of Hebrews is all about this. Now, in this text, in Psalm 45, 6, and 7, which he quotes there in Hebrews 1, 8, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. It goes back to the Davidic text, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. See? So this is going to be a forever king. But then when you go to the next verse, he just starts it with and. And if you tag back to the first of verse 8, of the son, he says, and he gives you one quote, and then the and mean he also says this about the son. Thou, Lord, in the beginning didst lay the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thy hands. They, the heavens and the earth, shall perish, but you shall continue. Uh, they, the heavens and the earth, shall grow old like a garment. As a mantle, you shall roll them up. As a garment, they shall be changed. But you are the same, and your years will never fail. See? What kind of a king is he going to be? A forever king. See, And so all of these Old Testament texts are stacked up to talk about Jesus Christ. Now then, in verse, the next verse, whatever the next verse is, uh, he goes to uh, verse 13, he goes to Psalm 110. Now he already made an allusion to Psalm 110.1 when he was at verse 3. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now he says, to which of the angels did he ever once say? You sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, little parentheses here. The 110th Psalm is the linchpin core text for the book of Hebrews. It's the most powerful, most important text to argue for Christianity in the book of Hebrews. The others are powerful too, but this is the center of it right here. And that passage says in Hebrew... Yahweh said to my Adonai, which is a completely different word. So you've got three characters there in Psalm 110.1. You've got Yahweh, our creator. Then you've got the my, and that's David. And then you've got David's Lord. So you've got Yahweh, David, and David's Lord. All right? So Yahweh says to David's Lord, whoever that is, you sit at my right hand <clears throat> until I make your enemies your footstool. And the whole premise of the book of Hebrews is that's God talking to Jesus Christ, enthroning him as Lord and King over the Messianic age. See, so that's the argument. So he goes right past that and says, are, are the angels, he didn't say that to the angels, he said it to Christ, are they not all ministering spirits, referring you back to verse 7, sent forth to do service for the sake of them that shall inherit salvation. So, since God has exalted Christ and enthroned him as king far above the angels, and since the angels only worship him, then <clears throat> we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things we've heard through who? Through, through the Son, see? Because don't you remember verse 1 and 2? God spoke to them back there, to the fathers, through the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by a son, see? So since that's true, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things that we have heard through the Son, lest happily we drift away from them. For if that word spoken through the angels, see, that's your Sinai covenant that came through the angels. 
If that word proved steadfast and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, then how shall we today escape if we neglect such a great salvation that was spoken to us by the Lord, meaning the Lord Jesus Christ, see? And so the idea is if Christ is superior and enthroned above the angels, then the word that came through Christ is superior to the word that came through the angels, all right? Then he's still talking about Christ and the angels at verse five, drop to verse five. It was not to angels that he subjected the world to come about which we are speaking. Now, in the book of Hebrews, the world to come is the messianic age. Then why does he say the world to come? Because from the perspective of the Old Testament, from the perspective of the Jewish people, From the perspective of the Hebrew Bible, the Messianic age was always in the future. See? Even in verse 2, he said, in these last days, he has spoken. So these last days and the world to come about which we are speaking are the same. In Hebrews 10, verse 1, the good things to come. In Hebrews 9, verse 9, the time of reformation. In Hebrews 6, about verse 3 or 4, the powers of the coming age. These are all different ways of talking about the Messianic age. When the Messiah would be enthroned and rule over all things, see? And here he says, not to angels did he subject the world to come about which we are speaking. Underline or circle that word subject in your Bible. Because somewhere he says, and now he quotes Psalm 8. He quotes Psalm 8 verses, I think it's 6 through 9 or something. I don't look, look at verse numbers very well. But it's Psalm 8. And Psalm 8 says, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels and you have crowned him with glory and honor and you have put, listen, you have put all things in subjection under his feet. See that word subjection? Not to angels did he subject the world to come, see? You have put all things in subjection under his feet. And then the next verse he says, Now in that he subjected all things to him, and that he did not leave anything out that was not subject to him, yet we do not yet see all things made subject to him. What's he mean? Well, man has conquered a lot of things. But man hasn't conquered Satan. And man hasn't conquered sin. And man hadn't conquered death, but the text says he put all things under his feet. So he says, we don't yet see all things subjected to him, but the next verse, I think it's verse 9, says, but we do see Jesus, who was made for a little while lower than the angels. He's coming out of the quote. Because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, coming out of the Psalm 8, see? So that he might taste of death, by the grace of God, he might taste of death for every man. So what he does with this psalm is he stacks it on top of all those other enthronement psalms in chapter 1. And he says, then we have this passage that says there's somebody here included in man that's different than just man in general to whom all things literally are made subject. Who is that? He preaches to his audience. All right, so next we have... Hebrews 3, 7. <clears throat> now in Hebrews chapter 3, he talks about the faithfulness of Christ 
and the faithfulness of Moses and the unfaithfulness of Israel. And in contrasting the unfaithfulness of Israel with the faithfulness of Christ, and by the way, it's because of Christ's faithfulness in his earthly life while he was living lower than the angels that God crowned him with glory and honor. So you've loved righteousness and hated lawlessness, and for this reason, God, even your God, has anointed you. See, that's the whole argumentation in the book of Hebrews. But in Psalm 95, 7... There's a key text that comes out of nowhere and hits you on the, on the head and you don't realize it. Today, if you shall hear his voice. Wait a minute now. Didn't he say in chapter 1, verse 1, that God spoke to them back then? But in these last days, he's spoken again. And so this passage says, today, if you shall hear his voice, do not harden your hearts like they did in the rebellion, like as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. And I was displeased with them and said, they do always go astray in their hearts and they have not known my ways. And therefore I swore in my wrath, said God, they will never enter into my rest. So take heed, brothers, lest there be in any one of you an evil, unfaithful heart in falling away from the living God. But encourage one another every day so long as it is called Today, go back to verse 7. Today, if you shall hear his voice. Don't you harden your heart like they hardened their heart. See, the clear implication, and I'm not going to go through every verse of chapters 3 and 4 where he discusses this text. But the clear implication is, okay, here's Moses back here and God speaks the definitive revelation at Sinai. Then many years later, David writes this psalm and all of a sudden it says, Today, if you shall hear his voice. Wait a minute now. As the, is there some kind of definitive revelation from God again? But it, the implication, and this is a necessary influence, inference if you really want one out of the Bible instead of making them up. This is an actual biblical one. <clears throat> if he says today, that implies that now there's another chance for us to hear his voice. And there must also be another chance for us to enter into that rest. <clears throat> we sing a song. I'm not going to sing it. We shall rest in that fair and happy land by and by. You know, to Canaan's land, I'm on my way. See, they didn't get to enter the rest. But this passage of scripture clearly implies that there is a day today when we get another chance to hear his voice and not harden our hearts and enter into that rest. Now, if you flip over into chapter 4 where you're still discussing this psalm, he says if Joshua had given them rest... He would not have afterward, so long time afterward, spoken of another day. I think that's like verse 7 or 9 or something like Verse 9 or 10 says, Therefore there remaineth a Sabbath rest for the people of God. How do you get that, writer of Hebrews? Because the text says, Today, if you shall hear his voice, don't make the same mistake they did, and you might get to enter into his rest. So the conclusion of that section is verse 11 of chapter 4. He says, Therefore, let us give diligence to enter that rest so that no man fall after the same example of disobedience. Okay? <clears throat> so that's how he uses Psalm 95. Now, think of it this way. You stack up all those enthronement texts in chapter 1. Then you stack up the Psalm 8 text in chapter 2 that he says, 
He put literally everything in subjection under his feet. And then you stack onto those the argument from this text that says today there's another chance to hear his voice through Christ and enter into that rest. So then we move into chapter 5, and I'm skipping stuff, but I can't help it. I haven't got 48 hours to teach you the book of Hebrews. But I've got 15 minutes and 45 seconds, according to Dennis Dale Petrillo. But... uh, And he's my friend. But um, when you move into chapter 5, you're getting into some psalms. One of them we've already had and one of them not. I think it's down in about verse 5. And his argument goes like this. It says, back in the Old Testament, and and even now you Jews today, you have your personal, you have your uh, human high priest. And he's appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. And he does so understanding his own weaknesses and stuff. And he says, you can't just appoint yourself a high priest. Korah tried that, and what happened to him? I mean, he got, he got burned up and swallowed in the ground, <clears throat> all right? So you can't appoint yourself. God has to say something like, Aaron, I want you, and I want your family, and that's it. And that, that's what makes you high priest. So no man takes the honor unto himself. But then he says in verse 5 that the same God that said to this son, You are my son today, I have become your father, when he enthroned him as king. That same God said in Psalm 110 verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. So now what was implied in what made him nervous in chapter 1 is flat out said that the same God that enthroned him as king has enthroned him and and appointed him as priest, see? And this is really getting in the face of those that are tied into Judaism, because how can that be? As he develops the argument, he's going to tell us that priests only come from the tribe of Levi and from the family of Aaron, and the kings come from the tribe of Judah, descending from David, and so this can't be except for Psalm 110, verse 1 through 4. Now, go back to Psalm 110 real quickly. And we're going to have to do this and get out soon if I'm going to respect your time. Psalm 110, verse 1, Yahweh said to David's Lord, second person plural, you sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Then if you'll follow from Psalm 110, 1 down and you underline the you's and the yours you will see that he's talking to the same person all the way down there. And then he gets to verse 4 and he says, Yahweh has sworn and will not change his mind. You, it's the same you as in verse 1, are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So the sworn oath of God himself says that he's going to do this. And if you think that through, there are huge implications to that. There are huge implications implications to that because if God said it it has to be right that's why if we go through the rest of chapter 6 he begins to talk about that immutable unchangeable promise to Abraham that we're all familiar with in thy seed all the nations of the earth will be blessed would God lie about that no but God also said in Psalm 110 verse 4 the Lord hath what sworn and will not change his mind so in Hebrews 6 18 when he says So that by two unchangeable things, that is, the promise to Abraham and God's oath to make Jesus a high priest, 
that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we may have a very strong encouragement, those of us that have fled from Judaism, to take refuge in the hope that is set before us. See? So why should I be a Christian? Well, <clears throat> if you read Psalm 110, God himself said there's going to be a king who is also going to be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. He reasons through patiently with these people as he preaches to them. And he comes to chapter 7 and verse 12. And he says very plainly, if the priesthood is going to change, the law has to change. That is implied by the psalm, Psalm 110. If Psalm 110 is true, then it was always in the mind of God to change the law of Moses. See, it has to be. It can't be any other way. All right, so then if you go to uh, chapter 8, verse 1. The chief point of everything I've been saying, I love it when a writer does that because it helps me out a whole lot. He says, the chief point of everything I've been saying <clears throat> is that uh, we do have such a high priest who sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Well, that's Psalm 110, 1, Psalm 110, verse 4. And he talks about that until chapter 8, verse 6. And then he introduces Jeremiah. Behold, the days are coming. See, that's the messianic age. When I will make a new covenant. Got to. That, one, that other one can't stand if God is going to make a king a priest. It can't be. So I'm going to make a new covenant. What's the difference in this new covenant? It's not according to the covenant that I made with your fathers in the day that I took them by the hand of, to lead them out of the land of Egypt. That shows you which covenant, Sinai covenant, which my covenant they broke, although I was a husband to them. But if you go a little far down, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days. I'll put my law in their mind and in their hearts will I write it. And I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people, and they will teach no more every man his neighbor, and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least to the greatest. For, this is the part you want to underline, I will forgive their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Now, would these Jews say this prophet Jeremiah was a bona fide Holy Spirit-filled prophet? Absolutely. But he said, I will make a new covenant, God said through Jeremiah, didn't he? which shows that the old one was going away. If you call something new, that makes the old one old. Like I'm the old preacher at Broadway, and Dustin, who sends his greeting, is the new preacher. That makes me old, okay? But um, <clears throat> so this, this covenant is going to be where there's no remembrance of sins. But the Jews saying, how can that be? Because in Leviticus 16, every single year, on the 10th day of the seventh month, there's another remembrance of sins on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and we go through this whole thing all over again, and more sacrifices and more sacrifices are offered, so this can't be what Jeremiah said can't be if Judaism stands. It can't be any more than Psalm 110 can be if Judaism... See, he's, he's making a pretty solid argument here if you look at it all together, <clears throat> and so he continues to talk about Jeremiah 31 and its implications, but you know the part in Hebrews... 10 that says it was impossible for the blood of bulls and goats uh, to take away sin. He's trying to explain the last verse of Jeremiah's prophecy that says, I will forgive their iniquities and their sins will I remember no more. How can that be? See, well, here we have our next Psalm, Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8. I want you to look at that with me. Open up your Bible, Psalm 40, <clears throat> verses 6 through 8. This is Hebrews. Well, actually, I'm looking at it in Hebrews uh, chapter 10 and verse 5. 
He says, consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, notice, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, underline this, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, and that's Christ talking, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. And then he interprets the passage for us in the verses below, and he compares the sacrifices and offerings of the law with the body of Christ, see, which was going to replace all those sacrifices. And if you go down to verse 10, he says, therefore, we're all sanctified by the offering of the body of Christ once for all time. And that explains how Jeremiah could say, I will forgive their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. See? So if you stack all those enthronement texts up there in uh, the first chapter, and then you stack on that Psalm 8 in the second chapter that says literally all things will be uh, put in subjection under his feet. And then if you stack on that, that Psalm 95 passage that says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. You've got another chance to enter into his rest. And then you stack on that, that 110th Psalm that just knocks the ball out of the park and says that God swore that he would appoint the same one, both king and priest, and the implication that the law has to change. And then Jeremiah's statement that I'm going to make a new covenant and that one's not going to be like the old one, and I'm going to be able to never remember their sins again, then we've made a pretty tight case for Christ there, haven't we? Do you know anybody else ever in history on the planet that could be who they're talking about there in all that? I do not. And these people that, to whom he was preaching this sermon in the book of Hebrews knew those Old Testament scriptures, and every time one of those came out and he slammed the implications of that on them, they got it. And they got it some more with each scripture and some more and some more. And then finally, <clears throat> these don't come from Psalms, but he goes over there to chapter 10 and verse 36 and he's talking about their faithfulness. You have need of endurance that having done the will of God, you may inherit uh, the, the promises. And then he says, for yet a little while, he that is coming will come and will not delay and the righteous one will live by faith or faithfulness. But if he shrinks back, my soul will have no pleasure in him. But we are not of those that shrink back unto punishment, but of them that have faith or are faithful unto the saving of the soul. And he puts in there Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 3 and 4. The phrase that's key is the righteous shall live by faith. And that phrase rules chapter 11. Chapter 11 is a discussion of that passage right there. He often talks about the righteousness of the people that live by faith. And every one of the paragraphs begin with by faith. I translate them in my translation by faithfulness, by faithfulness, by faithfulness. And that's the guiding post of chapter 11. See? So I've just about run out of Psalms. And I've just about run out of time. Look at that clock, Chiller. It's a four minutes and 36 seconds left. Now, is it just me? Or is that powerful? But church, listen to me. If you want Sunday school where people are going to just entertain you, and if you want sermons 
where people are just going to give you a pep rally and make you feel good. You're not going to get the power of God's word like we're talking about here. Have we preached scripture or just our own ideas here? Scripture, scripture city. Amen. That's where the power is. And the church better wake up and start wanting it and valuing it and demanding it. Or we're going to be in a heap of trouble, brothers and sisters. God is great. Jesus is God's enthroned king. Jesus is our forever high priest who will never die. Jesus' sacrifice is the only answer. And if you're not a Christian, that book ought to convince you that you must become a Christian. And if you are a Christian, that book ought to show you that you should never turn away from your Christianity. For in just a little while, he that is coming will come. One more verse, and I'll give it to you. He seals the deal over in Hebrews 12, verse 25. When he says, see that you do not refuse him that is speaking. That takes you all the way back to chapter 1, verse 2. In these last days, he has spoken to us by a son. That takes you to chapter 3, verse 7. Today, if you shall hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as they did in the rebellion. I hope that lesson will be beneficial to you who are preachers, that will encourage you. And so um, God bless you and thank you for paying good attention.